to uh, 1 John again. We're going to read this time from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, down to chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John 2, 28. And now the children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I want to think with you this morning of what it means to be the children of God. The story is told of a boy who had lots of issues and was placed in an orphanage. There in the orphanage, he found life hard, but one day prospective adoptive parents came along and they looked at all the children in the orphanage and they chose him and they took him home to be with them as their adopted son. Over the course of the next few years, some more uh, personal issues surfaced and by the time that he went to school, his peers were kind of in the habit of poking fun at him. They made life quite hard for him. As we know, sometimes children can be quite cruel. But one day, as they were taunting him, one of them raised the issue of his adoption. And he said, ha ha, you were adopted. And he tried to make fun of him on account of that. The little boy just looked up quietly and said to them, when my parents chose me, they chose me out of all the others whom they might have chosen. Yours had to make do with what they got. And that very quickly silenced these critics and the jibes that didn't come after that. Now I begin on that note this morning because in the Bible when the scriptures speak of what it means to be God's children... It speaks in several passages, as we've seen in our readings today, of adoption. And we know that according to the Shorter Catechism, based, of course, entirely on Scripture, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons or of the children of God. So the Bible speaks of being adopted into God's family, in fact, Paul says that we have been predestined for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. As we saw in our readings, no repeated references made to the whole topic of adoption. Alongside that, of course, the Bible also speaks of being born again of God into his family. And so we can take the two ideas together as we think this morning on what it means to be God's children. We have both been born again of the Spirit into God's family, and we have been adopted as an act of God's free grace. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to everyone. 
That only applies to those who are in a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Shamitha brought that we're all God's children. There is a sense in which that's true, in that God is our creator, and God is the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. As Paul said in Athens, quoting from one of their poets, we are all God's offspring. But Jesus makes it very clear, even as he addresses his religious critics, who prided themselves on their ancestry, on the fact that they were the children of Abraham, Jesus made clear to them that they were in fact of their father, the devil. And in our reading in Galatians, we saw clearly who the true children of Abraham are. They are those men and women, young and old, from all over the world, who by faith in Christ have been made right with God and now belong to his family. Those who have received Jesus, to as many as received him, gave he the right to be children of God. So the question that must be posed before we launch into our sermon this morning is this. What right do we have to believe that right now we are God's children? Do we have a right to apply that title to ourselves that is founded solely on the word of God? We must take everything to the searchlight of Scripture in order to ascertain where we stand as far as the things of God are concerned this morning. And so as we look at this topic, I want to consider several things. First of all, as God's adopted children, as those who have been born again of the Spirit of God, we bear the personal name of God. We bear his personal name. We're identified with the family. When the Bible speaks of the godly, it's not just speaking of those whom we might regard as super saints. It's speaking of all who are truly God's children, all who belong to the family of God. We bear the name of God before an unbelieving world. We bear the name of Christ. They were first called Christians at Antioch. And ever since, that name has been applied to God's people. And again, when the Bible speaks of those who are truly spiritual and tells us clearly that the world is divided into two, those who are spiritual and those who are carnal, then we obviously infer from that that the only truly spiritual people are those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling them and are identified with them. So we bear the personal name of God as his adopted children. And that brings with it certain very solemn responsibilities. As we bear his name before a watching world, we must ensure that we do nothing that is inconsistent with the name that we bear. When a child in a family does something that is honourable, the whole family shares in that honour. Equally, when a member of a family does something that is of disrepute, then the whole family feels the shame. And that's how it is spiritually. It's so important that as God's people, both as individuals and collectively, we live in a way that elevates the name of the one whose name we are privileged to bear. The story is told of Alexander the Great, who was told on one occasion that one of his soldiers had committed a serious misdemeanor. He was summoned to appear before the emperor. 
And the first question he was asked was this, what's your name? To Alexander's horror, the soldier said, my name is Alexander. The response of the emperor was immediate, change your name or mend the way you live. And again, that reminds us of how important it is that we live in accordance with the one whose name we bear as God's children. But as soon as we say that, we feel our inadequacy and we feel our helplessness and we feel how impossible it is for us to live up to the family name. But the Bible tells us that God's people participate in the divine nature. We're saved by grace and it is by that grace of God that we are enabled to live for him. Just as we couldn't believe in him without his grace, without him working in our lives. So we can't live for him without his outworking, his own saving purposes in us and through us. We are renewed in his image. We are born of God. Adoptive children can receive everything that their parents have apart from one thing. They can't receive their adoptive parents' nature from their adoptive parents. But in the family of God, we participate in the divine nature, as Peter made so clear. Now we have this right to become the children of God, and we're enabled by his grace to live in a way that is to his glory. So we have no right to say that we can't live God's way when his Holy Spirit indwells us and when he enables us so to live. But belonging to God also means that we belong to his people. As God's people, we belong to him and we belong to one another. We must recognize the brotherhood and sisterhood of all believers we must recognize as God's children with us in his family all those whom God recognizes and receives as children in his family. And just as he relates to all his children in a loving way, so we must relate to each and all of his children in a way that reflects that family to whom we belong. Whom he loves, we must love. Whom he receives, we must receive whom he recognizes as his own, we must recognize as belonging to his family as well. We should be thankful that we're not all the same. There are many different types of people in the family of God. But what binds them together is that they belong to God, that they've been saved by God's grace, and that they relate to him, and that they relate to one another. So this morning, we should be thankful for the fact that in the unity, there is diversity. That God has all sorts in his family. We saw that in one of our readings. One, the Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. Lots of different types. How thankful we should be that we're not all the same. That we're not all clones of each other. But if we're God's children, then we belong together and we belong to him. And our testimony must be that of Ruth. Your people, my people. Why? Because your God is my God. So as we reflect on these things this morning, how thankful we ought to be for the privilege and responsibility of bearing the personal name of God as we live our lives out in the world. 
how thankful we should be that we partakers of uh, participate in the divine nature and that God enables us to live in a way that glorifies him and how thankful we should be that we belong together as his people to one another and to God himself. And yet, having said that, there are many times when God's people may question, God's people may wonder whether they belong at all. Now, one of my most treasured possessions is the full transcript of a sermon that was preached by Greyfriars' first minister, Donald MacDonald, on the 14th of December, 1975. I don't know how the full transcript of that sermon has come into my possession, but it's in my possession and it ain't going to leave me <laughs> for as long as God spares me in this life. Because it's on the question of why do you doubt? And it's a masterpiece of a sermon on the whole subject of why God's people doubt and of why God's people should not doubt. It's a a sermon that is based on the words of Jesus to Peter as he was walking on the water and as he began to sing, Wherefore dost thou doubt? It's couched, of course, in 1975 language. But reading through that sermon, as I've done on many occasions, it just reminds us again and again of how God wants his people to know that they belong to him. He wants us to be persuaded of the fact that we are his, and that he is ours forever. God wants us to know that we belong to his family. Every parent here this morning wants your children to know that they are your children, that they belong to your family. There would be very cruel parents who didn't want their children to know that they belonged. Well, how much more does our heavenly parent, how much more does our father who is in heaven want his children to know that we are his? He doesn't want us to doubt he wants us to be assured, not to be presumptuous, but to be sure and certain, founded on the word of God. That sermon by Donald MacDonald takes us back again and again and again to what the Bible says and reminds us of the fact that it is on the basis of what the Bible says and our own experience of the truth of Scripture that we can be sure and certain that we are the Lord's and of how dishonouring it can be to God for his people to question whether we are his at all. The Bible speaks again and again in the language that highlights the, the preciousness of that relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. That spirit of adoption by whom we're able to say, Abba, Father. The language of assurance is found throughout God's word. I know whom I have believed. I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. Now, I am convinced that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and so on, and so on, and so on. God wants us to be persuaded that we are his, if we are his. He doesn't want us to presume we're his if we have no biblical warrant for coming to that conclusion. He wants us to be careful on that score. Let a person examine himself and herself. We must look at ourselves in the light of what the scriptures say. 
But if we look at ourselves in the light of what the scriptures say and realize that going by the word of God, we have every right to count ourselves among his children, let's not doubt. Let's not be guilty of that kind of unbelief. And yet we might at times feel, well, we feel so, so distant from God. And we might sometimes think that because we're not conscious of, of God's felt presence. But before coming into the service today, and Alistair prayed that, that, that we would know God's felt presence. Well, we don't always have that sense of God's felt presence. But we can be sure from God's word that we still have his presence. Because he's promised his people that he will never leave them nor forsake them. God can't break his promise. And he's told us that he's with us at all times and in all situations. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I had an old elder when I was in Helmsdale, and he, he delighted at times to talk in riddles. And one Sunday night before we went into the church, I remember he turned to me and he said, do you know which version of the Bible reads the same backwards as it reads forwards? And I said, no, but you'd better tell me before I go in or I'll lose my train of thought for the sermon. And he said, it's, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I said, how does that read backwards the same as it reads frontwards? And he said, you forsake nor you leave, never will I. So it doesn't matter which way you come at it. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You leave nor you forsake, never will I. It comes to the same. God is promising that he is with us, even when we might not be aware of it. Even when we might not have his felt presence, we've still got his presence. And he wants us to come into his presence. He wants us to know that the way into his presence is open. Jesus is the way. And by him, we have access through faith into this grace in which we stand. Sometimes, I don't know how many parents here, we have the children in the sermon, so I'm kind of going to try and put in one or two words that hopefully they'll pick you up as we go along. But I remember... We lived in an old man's in Helmsdale a long time ago, and we had three small children. And uh, I had my study downstairs. Now, sometimes I was tempted to put a notice up on the door of my study, please do not disturb. I think I tried it once, but they took no notice of it, (laughs) and they came in anyway. And, you know, sometimes we might, parents might feel, oh, I don't want you to disturb me just now. But God, God never feels that way about his children. God will never put a, please do not disturb me just now, Sahib. Never. Because God always wants all his children to come into his presence at all times. And God will, you know, again, sometimes parents will say, oh, leave me just now, I'm too busy doing this, or I'm too busy doing that, or I'm too busy dealing with, with your brother or your sister. I'm too busy to deal with you just now. Parents might say that. God will never say that. God is never too busy dealing with others to deal with us. God is able to deal with all our problems. Remember the children's talk? We can pray about anything, at any time, anywhere, because God answers. And God is never too busy dealing with one to not have time for another. So we have access into God's presence as his people. And I think that's a great thing. Now that as God's children, we know that we can, we can come into his presence and the door is always open. And then there is this, all the promises. 
Now, I don't know if some of my children here this morning have had the experience of your parents promising you something and then not delivering on that promise. I hope not. But we can, we can sometimes be guilty of that. We can sometimes promise things in a, in a bit of a hurry just to, just to silence them and not deliver. But God never does that. God will always fulfill every promise that he has made. And you know, as God's people, all the promises belong to us. I remember many years ago in Christian circles, they had, they had a thing called a promise box. And, and sometimes people would just, you know, it would be a box with Bible promises and people would, it was almost like a lucky dip. And you would pull out a promise and sometimes it was relevant and sometimes it wasn't. Well, that's not the way God wants us to be. God wants us to realize that all his promises belong to us. All the promises of God belong to us. And God will never fail to deliver on any promise that he has made. Sometimes we'll, we'll make promises and will not, will not be able to deliver. And our parents may make promises to us that they can't deliver. You know, they might promise us a bike and then discover that it's too expensive. You know, that kind of thing can happen with parents and children. But that never happens with God. God will always fulfill every promise. The Bible says, faithful is he who has promised, who will also bring it to pass. And so we have a right to all the promises of God's word. And you know, sometimes as God's people, we impoverish ourselves spiritually by failing to claim the promises, by failing to make full use of the promises. There's a hymn that goes, standing on the promises of God. And we so often fail to do that. And one of the promises of God for his people is that he will provide for all their needs. He will provide for all our needs. Now we have many needs. Children have lots of needs. And so do God's children. Children's parents may not always be able to provide for their children's needs. But our heavenly parent is able and willing to more than provide for all our needs. He tells us that if we seek first his kingdom and to be right with him, then all these things will be added to us. He will look after our every other need if we make it our priority to be right with God. Our great, the greatest need that we all have is to be right with God. Okay? And God in Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for that need to be met. Jesus has come. He's lived that perfect life that we haven't lived. Even as a boy, he lived a perfect life. And as a grown-up. And Jesus went to the cross and he took the punishment that was due to us for our sins. So that we, we trust in what Jesus has done. Then our greatest need is met. Our greatest need is met. Our priority must be making sure that we are right with God. And once we do that, once we belong to the family of God, we can be sure that he will provide for all our other needs too. Whatever they may be, great or small, he will provide for us. So the question for us today is, have we accepted the provision that God has made in Jesus for our souls, for our eternal needs? Have we accepted what God has done? Because it's by receiving the gift of 
life based on what Jesus has done on the cross that we become, as we saw, God's children. We're made right with God through faith in Jesus. But even having said all that, you might sometimes feel, yeah, but we're living in a world that is full of danger. And, and we're so weak ourselves. And we're so vulnerable. And we could fall at any time. That's not a bad thing to actually be aware of. Because it's those who think they stand whom the Bible warns and says to them, take heed lest you fall. But the Bible speaks of God protecting his people. Protecting his people. He knows that his people are up against it in lots of ways. But he promises that their going out and coming in will be kept by him. There was a minister once who died at a good old age. And just before he died, he was asked, what do you want written on your stone? And he said, I just want one word. What's that? Kept. Kept. And the Bible speaks of God's people as those who are being kept by his power. God protects God promises that. Jesus says that our names are engraved on the palms of God's hands and that no one can plug us from those hands. Right, children again. When our, when our children were small, we, we lived, I mentioned before, we lived in Helmstill and we were in a corner just as the road goes up to the, the Strathakildon and we were on that corner and sometimes cars came round the corner very quickly. And we were very aware of the fact that whenever our children were going out, we had to have a hold on their hand. We, have, we had to have a hold on them. Now, sometimes they would, try to, they would try to run away and do their own thing. But we wouldn't let them because we knew that was dangerous. And you know, when you're out and your mum or dad or whoever is looking after you holds your hand, don't kind of try to pull your hand away and go your own way because... You never know what might happen if you do that. But if you let them keep you, then you know you're safe. And that's how it is with God. We're kept by his grip. He will not let us go. He promises. Even although we sometimes do our utmost to try and get away from him, he still brings us back. He holds us fast. And how thankful we should be for that. You're going out and coming in. God will keep forever. We have this wonderful protection of God as his people. Ah, but you say, yes, but you haven't dealt with a problem yet. Right? What problem is that? The fact that I sin against God every day. The fact that I offend God every day. The fact that even if I'm a new man, woman, boy, girl in Christ, I still sin. So what hope is there for me? Well, does the Bible not speak of God pardoning the sins of those who confess? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And we're not telling the truth. The truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some years ago, 
I remember hearing Charles Price speak at a meeting, and he quoted that verse that I've just quoted. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Price asked, why do you think it says he is faithful and just rather than he is faithful and merciful or he is faithful and gracious? Why do you think the word just is put in in that text? And he stopped for a minute and allowed the congregation to think. And then he came back with the answer. And the answer is surely very clear. That God's justice needs to be satisfied. If there's any hope of us being pardoned. And God's justice has been satisfied at the cross. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. At the cross... Christ offers that sacrifice that satisfies divine justice and by which we are reconciled to God. And he's faithful on that basis to forgive us our sins, to pardon us. Ah, but you say, I'm the exception to that rule because my sins are in a different league to all others. What does the verse say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, what's the next word? All unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. There's pardon for sin and a peace that endureth for the people of God. Don't belittle what Christ has done on the cross and imagine that somehow There can be no pardon for you. But then there is this. As God's people, and as those who do offend him often, and as those who do let him down often, we need to be under his parental discipline. Now again, children, discipline. What do you make of your parents' discipline? I know I hated it when I was your age. I didn't like being disciplined by mum or dad. I really, really didn't. And sometimes, some of my friends would have done the same thing as I did, but they wouldn't be disciplined. And I was jealous of them because their parents didn't seem to to mind what they were doing. Whilst mine did. Now, I had the privilege of Christian parents And at the time, I resented parental discipline. But now looking back, boy, am I glad. Because I realized that their discipline was done for my good. It was done out of love. It was done because they cared for me. And the Bible says that that's exactly the same as it is with God in Hebrews. God disciplines his people because he loves them. And if we're without God's parental discipline, then we need to question whether we are children of God at all. But if we know anything of what it is to be put right by God, to be disciplined by God, then that's a great privilege. And it should encourage us, because its aim is in order to make us more like Jesus. 
the writer to the Hebrews speaks of it producing the peaceable fruit of righteousness. When your parents discipline you, they're doing it in order that you might grow up to be the kind of people that they and God want you to be. We all need to be correct. Believe me, grown-ups need to be disciplined as well. Well, I certainly do. And, and God disciplines grown-ups and children in order that we might be corrected when we go wrong and in order that we might live more in a way that is pleasing to him. So it's a great thing to have the privilege of God's parental discipline, so long as it produces in us more and more Christ-likeness. Don't worry, I'm nearly finished. Just another two or three things. Ask God's people... We are free to practice the Christian life as those who are accountable to God and ultimately to God alone for the way in which we live. What I mean is this. Before we become Christians, we, we try our best to make it with God and we fail miserably. And sometimes people may think we're doing well or, or not, but we, we, we fail every time. We try to make it and we just can't make it. But when we accept what Jesus has done for us and belong to the family of God, we're set free to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Not free to do our own thing, but free to do his thing. Set free to please God. I remember many years ago there was a, a woman who had been in a mess. Her name was Doreen Irvin. Her life had been a mess. And then Jesus came and sorted her out. And she wrote a book called Set Free to Serve Christ. Not set free to carry on as a sinner, but set free to serve Christ. And it's a great thing to be set free by God to serve him. Whom the Son makes free shall be free indeed. Freedom was the cry in Braveheart. Freedom for God's people. That is what we're promised in God's word. Free to practice that life that is glorifying to God. And that brings untold spiritual enjoyment to our own souls. And not only so, but there's the prospect of all that is yet to be. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that's often, I won't say misquoted, but it's not fully quoted. The eye has not seen nor the ear heard, neither has it entered the heart of man, but God has prepared for those who love him. And people stop there. But Paul goes on to say, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. And in the Scriptures, even in the verses that I took as the basis for this sermon this morning, we're told by John, that it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. It would be a wonderfully profitable study for all of us to look at what the scriptures say about those things that God has prepared for those who love him. That our appetites might be whetted for more of him and for more of his presence in our lives. The Bible speaks of what happens when we die as God's people. We go to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it doesn't leave it there. The Bible also speaks of a day coming 
when the resurrection will take place and when we will enjoy the fullness of those blessings that we will participate in in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And these are things and many other things besides that are highlighted for us as the, the prospects that belong to us as the people of God, but only as the people of God. And if you don't have that assurance that you're a child of God this morning, then you can have no assurance insofar as your eternal prospects are concerned. But God's word is telling you today that if you flee from the wrath to come to Christ, then all these things that we've been trying to mention this morning will be yours as well. But there is one other thing, and I finish then honestly. Here we're told that everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. Jesus prays that his people might be sanctified through the truth. His word is truth. But here John emphasizes our responsibility. I heard a sermon by Ian Hamilton last Sunday evening on what it means to abide in Christ. And the highlight of that sermon was the importance of abiding in his word and having his word govern all that we do as his people. So that no matter how marvellous our experience of God's grace may be just now, the best is yet to be. There is more to come. As I finish, I want to ask this morning whether or not, based on what the Bible says, you have any right at all to assume that you are a child of God. If you do, then give him all the glory for it and seek to live in a way that adorns the doctrine of God your Saviour. And if you're not yet at that point, again let me remind you that to as many as will receive him, he gives the right to be children of God. Salvation is on offer today, full and free, paid for at the cross for us to accept. May God help us by his grace, so to do, for his glory's sake. Amen. Let's close this morning by singing to God's praise from Psalm 23.